Um, if this sermon series is a, um, is, uh, if you might compare it to a mountain range, this, this is where over the next three, uh, four or five weeks is sort of where you hit the sort of steep incline, where things get harder, um, more difficult, and more vertical. And so um, that, it's with that in, in mind that we, uh, we approach this topic of divorce, and I also want to just say this is... This will be a longer sermon than my normal sermons. This is not a topic I can... I can't rush through this material, and I need to give you all of it, unless you misunderstand. And so I'm not going to rush. I, I hope not to take you too much longer than normal. If you've got to get up and go to the bathroom, that's fine. If you need to walk around in the back, that's fine. But it's important that we, we um, take this as a whole and we patiently work through it, because there's a great deal at stake. So hear God's word to us this morning from... Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. And the Pharisees came to Jesus. They came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no, not man separate. Therefore, they, they said to him, <clears throat> They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those for whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs, For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, let the one who is able receive this, the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, we pray that you meet us in the messiness of divorce, the messiness of wherever we find ourselves in relationship to that reality in our lives, whether as those who have gone through it or those who have been children of it, or those who are wrestling and contemplating it, or those who don't understand. Help us, meet us in the mess with grace and with truth. Have mercy upon me, your servant. Give me wisdom. Give me grace and truth and clarity. And help us to know that you are present even in the darkest, in the most difficult places. And there you speak words of truth, but also of mercy and compassion. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Of all the areas of our sexual brokenness and sin, perhaps the one that impacts us the most, or the one that touches the most of us here, is the reality of divorce. The statistic in America, and this has been the case for probably since the 70s, is that nearly half of marriages in America end in divorce. 
my parents divorced when I was five years old. My wife's parents divorced when she was one years old. Within my immediate family of brothers, sisters, between Katie and I, there are six failed marriages. <clears throat> Within uh, my friend group of weddings I've attended over the fa- past 15 years, a couple that I was, a, a handful of them have divorced. I've watched divorces just in the past year take place within my extended family, within my neighborhood in Bayview, where I live for just two years, there's been three divorces, families, some, in some cases houses being sold and moving out. <clears throat> and as a pastor, this is to say nothing of my experience as a pastor and helping and being involved with people who have gone through divorce, Divorce is something that ravages you, and it ravages families, and it ravages communities and children. It's one of the most painful experiences that you can go through as a human being. I remember very clearly, one of my earliest memories was actually um, my mom and my brother and I loading up into the red Chevette and leaving my father's household and driving to Flint, Michigan, at the age of five years old, that, that's one of my earliest memories of leaving my parents' house. And, it, and uh, I remember, you know, eventually my parents, my mom and stepdad, we moved to, to Florida. I remember what it's like to be shuttled back and forth between parents, like weekend with my dad and most of the week with my mom. And the summers when we moved to Florida, summers with my dad. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I have a good relationship with my parents, both of them. And I love them. If you're listening to this, Mom, I love you. Um, but, but there was a lot of fallout for me personally <laughs> as a child of divorce. And so, now my point here is not to, to be grim or alarmist about the reality of divorce, but to be honest. I, I think it's for, important for us to be honest about how painful divorce is and how ravaging it is. And we need to be honest about what Scripture says about divorce. Now, it's easy to look at our culture and and think and and become sort of alarmed about all the things that are going, but the reality is this, friends. Divorce, or marriage rather, has always been difficult. It's always been difficult. It's not as if somehow there's some unique thing that's happened in our culture where, um, you know, there's a permissiveness in our culture and a focus on ourself that I think leads to more divorce, a lack of social sanction. But the reality is, is that when Adam and Eve left the garden, <laughs> when they left the garden, marriage got difficult. And it's been the case for all of human history. Preparing for this sermon was a real challenge. In many ways, this is a sermon of all the ones that I had planned. Um, and we have some hard ones ahead. This is the one I think I've been sort of the most nervous and worried about for a number of reasons. The first being that what Jesus says about divorce strikes us as quite strict and severe. (laughs) Two, what Jesus says about divorce and the permissibility of it and the possibility of remarriage is actually highly contested. It's it's contested. There's a lot of interpretive, and, and they're actually very complicated passages that I can't possibly get into all that with you this morning. But, but three, I mean, the fact is that there's some of you have gone through divorce or have close people have gone, and you're wondering, is this guy going to just heap more sort of guilt and shame on me than I already feel, right? <laughs> or maybe you're in the midst of a difficult marriage and you're thinking, 
how do I get out? How do, how do I make this work? What can I do? Or as a single person, you're, you're thinking, holy cow, <laughs> do I even want to go there? See, there's, there's a lot of things, and I, I honestly thought about not preaching this sermon, but I was just re- reminding myself, one, that God's commands around sexuality, all his commands, but especially those around sexuality, are always good. They're always for our good. They're not meant to just, they're not arbitrary, right? It's not as if God commands things arbitrarily. As one theologian puts it, his commands are not arbitrary, but they correspond to the way the world is and the way the world will be. And I think it's important for us as a congregation and a community to be able to have hard conversations. To look at those really difficult things square in the face and talk about it and wrestle through it. And so that's what I want to do with you this morning. I really want to just walk through this passage with you closely and carefully. And there's four things about divorce that Jesus teaches us here. First, there's Jesus' prohibition against divorce. There's what Jesus teaches about the real cause of divorce. There's Jesus' reluctant allowance of divorce. And then there's the hope beyond divorce. So the prohibition, the real cause, the reluctant allowance, and the hope. Now, it's impossible to understand Jesus' prohibition against divorce unless you understand what it's meant to protect which is marriage. And you have to understand what marriage is if you're going to understand the strictness and the severity of, of what Jesus says around divorce. But it's helpful here to actually just step back a minute and look at the broader context of this text. The Pharisees come to Jesus, and it says they want to test him. In other words, they want to sort of get him to, to say something that's going to make kind of out him um, in a way that's going to create problems. And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce for any reason? Now, in, the ancient, in this period of time of Israel, this was basically, there was a no-fault divorce culture in Jewish society. And it, and it all went back to a text in Deuteronomy 24, which is the, the text of debate, where Moses allows uh, men, and this is all the male prerogative, this is not, females did not have a right to divorce, only men did, there's a debate about what's legal, what's lawful as the grounds for divorce. And there were two schools of debate, two rabbinic schools. There was the, the, the liberal Hillel school, which basically said you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. She burns the lamb, right? She, gets, she start, you know, starts sagging a bit. You can divorce her and then take another wife. And then there was the conservative Shammai school, which said actually no, the only lawful reason you can divorce your wife is for the case of what's called indecency or unchastity. And so this is, they, want, they just assume that Jesus is going to be, he's going to be somewhere in here, and let's figure out where he is. And of course, John the Baptist was beheaded because he called Herod's marriage unlawful and condemned it. And so maybe there's a sense of, we can get him to be, come out really strong against divorce and and uh, we can get him in trouble. And Jesus refuses to play and, and go where the Pharisees want him to. He doesn't answer their question. He, he, said, he doesn't answer the question. He, he, instead, what he does is he, 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 he doesn't accept the assumption underneath their question, which is that there's legitimate and lawful reasons for divorce. He rejects that altogether. I think that's very important to see. And what he does is he reasserts and reminds. He says, have you not read? Don't you know what God said in the beginning? Check out verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them 
from the beginning, made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, not man separate. What Jesus is saying here is, marriage, don't you remember what the original intention of marriage was? How God created marriage in the beginning? That marriage is, not a, marriage is not a human construct. It's not something we invented. It's a God construct. It's something that God created. In fact, it's part of Christian cosmology. I talk about this in the very beginning of our sermon series. That, that marriage is the very last thing that God creates in the universe. And it's part of his creation. And it's interesting what Jesus says. And what he does is he takes a quote from Genesis 1 about God creating the male and female. And he takes a quote from Genesis 2 about how a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And he pulls them together, and then he inserts his own commentary. And he says, let not man separate what God, or let not man separate what God has made one. And what he's saying there is, he's saying actually something quite significant, because what he's saying is that God is involved in the act of marriage. It's not as if God created, like, you know, he, he created this thing, and then he just gave it to us and said, go do with it, Right? He actually created this thing, marriage, and then he says, I am continually involved in it. A verse, uh, just to draw to your attention, from the book of Malachi. And by the way, I put all the marriage texts in the very back of your worship folder. You can look at these later or make reference to them. But there's a, a fascinating quote from Malachi where the prophet writes, Did God not make them one, that is, the married couple? Did God not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? In other words, God gets involved with marriage universally in uniting. That, that in other words, that, that God is joining. That, that, that this one flesh reality is not just a metaphor. It's not just a kind of poetic way of thinking about intimacy. But there's something there. There's some essence. There's something about our natures that are joined metaphysically, spiritually, when we are married. And this is what Jesus is reminding them. And he says, therefore... He who divorces his wife, he tears asunder. I like what the King James, old King James says, don't tear asunder that which God has made one. As you see in there, your, your worship folder, John Calvin, this quote, he who divorces his wife tears from him, as it were, half of himself. See, friends, that's what divorce is. Divorce is a form of, of self-amputation. It is, it is, if you become one flesh and you break that, what you're doing is you're tearing yourself apart. You're tearing asunder. You don't leave a marriage, a true marriage, fully intact. And so Jesus is calling out the assumption that somehow there are lawful reasons. <laughs> Reasons that, that are anything other than sinful and tragic by which one could divorce. And I think the bottom line here, what you need to see is that according to Jesus, that marriage is permanent. It's a permanent relationship. And it's inviolable. Which means that the reality of divorce can only be understood as a sinful failure. A sinful failure, a tragic accommodation to the reality of sin in our lives. And, I, and it's easy here for us to think of Jesus as, as some kind of out-of-touch fundamentalist. or <laughs> Right? Like, I, I go, what's well, so strict? But friends, I will remind you here, divorce ravages. <laughs> it will ravage you. It will ravage your children. 
Friends, I, I have sat with, I, I have had close friends tell me they're getting divorced and then tell me that the kids will be fine. And as a divorce kid, I'm like, you are delusional. <laughs> you are delusional. Your kids will be, they will make it. I, you know, but to think that somehow your kids will not be impacted, it's wishful thinking. It's self-delusion, friends. There are consequences. That's the thing about divorce. There are massive consequences. There are massive consequences. And this is why for Jesus will... Divorce is never God's desire for your marriage. Just never. It's just never God's desire for your marriage. You need to know that. That's what Jesus very clearly teaches here. And if I could just back up for a moment and I could just address singles amongst you for a minute. Please do not be casual about your approach to marriage. Please do not be casual in your dating life, in your relationship life. What the Book of Common Prayer says about marriage, I think, is an important one to meditate on. It says, marriage is not to be entered into lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purpose for which God instituted it. It is meant as death deal you part. The only way in God's design that marriage ends is by death. That's how it was meant to be, a dissolving by death. And when you go into marriage, Christian, you have to go in that this is the long haul, till death do, my, do me part. Marriage, divorce is not an option. And so, singles, please take this seriously. Who you marry has the power to set the course of your life, for good or for bad. That person will have more influence to shape your identity and your sense of self, your sense of well-being in the world than you can possibly imagine. And they can make you life and they can break you. And you have to be very careful about who you marry. And especially, that person needs to share your faith. They need to share your faith. There's a reason the Bible is so clear about not being unequally yoked. There will be, don't be wishful and naive. There is so much pain ahead if you ignore the Scripture's teaching on these things. You need... And, you need the community. You need, the, you, need, you, need to allow, you need to allow your friends and your family and the church community to have input and to help you process whether a person is good fit or not for you. You know, marriage is not... <laughs> I know there's a way that when you're young and you're in love and you're, you, just, you just want to be married and, and you can think that marriage is sunsets and candlelight dinners and heart-shaped hot tubs and... I mean... Sybaris, <laughs> right? Did you guys... Uh, you guys know that commercial. I just and you know, marriage is amazing, but it is difficult. It is difficult, and it and it's better to never marry than to marry the wrong person, friends. It is better to never marry than to marry the wrong person. So Jesus, of course, um, the Pharisees are not satisfied with Jesus's answer on this because he doesn't really answer their question, and so they come back to him and they say, you know. Moses sets a precedent. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And here's what Jesus' response to that is. And he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And what Jesus gives us here is the real cause of divorce. Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is the real cause of divorce. All divorces, 100% of marriages at root, 
fail because of, that the marriages that fail, fail because of hardness of heart. Now, let me think about the opposite of what it means to be hardened heart. It's to be tender-hearted, right? When you fall in love, think of you, you guys that have married for a while, when you first, or those of you who are in a relationship, when, when you first meet a person, you really start falling for that person. I mean, the best way to describe your heart is as tender-hearted, right? You're just tender-hearted. You're, 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 you know, you, you tend to overlook the bad things, right? Oh, that's, you know, you, you tend to be very forgiving and, and you know, um, you, you tend to think about the other, about how can, you know, how can I please, how can I love, how can I express devotion and care? You're tender-hearted. You're, you're patient, right? There's all these things. Your just heart is, is there. You're connected, right? Now, when you get married, <clears throat> early on, your wife doesn't mind if you have a pile of clothes that sits there for a week or two in the bedroom. She's tender-hearted. Now, over time, 10 years, 15 years, that pile of clothes starts to annoy her a little. I'm not speaking from personal experience or anything. (laughs) But it's it's, it's really amazing that, that, and I have to confess, it's my pile of clothes. Um, You can talk to Katie later about this. But but it's amazing that when you get in marriage, that pile of clothes... (laughs) And I'm not saying this is true of my marriage, but that pile of clothes can be the source of incredible frustration and anger at times, the little things. Because what happens oftentimes in marriage is, you know, you're living life, and it's easy for our hearts to become hardened, and we're familiar with one another, and it's not like it was in the beginning. And you can take hurt, things that are done, and you, can, you kind of close yourself up a little. You become a little hardened, Right? And life gets hard, and maybe there's neglect of the relationship, and there's a distance, and you don't understand one another. And there's this hardening that takes place, and this happens. And it's a danger to all marriages, really. I mean, you have to work at tenderheartedness in a marriage, even a good marriage. But sometimes when the wounds are great, and the distance is great, and pressures of life are great, there's a way that we harden ourselves. Now, I know that loneliness is a hard thing as a single person. I know it can be hard to sleep in a bed by yourself year after year, wondering whether there'll ever be somebody you could share a bed with. But friends, there's a loneliness in marriage. (laughs) Imagine sleeping in a bed next to somebody that you are a million miles away from. That's they're right there. You could reach out and touch them, but you, you can't touch their soul. You can't touch their heart, and they can't touch you. Now that is a loneliness, friends, that that is one of the hardest things to deal with. And in, in many ways, that's the source of, of a lot of infidelity and adultery in marriages is that sense of loneliness because of hard-heartedness of spouses and they distance themselves and they have to somehow deal with the loneliness. But here, here's where it's important to understand um, why Jesus says what he says about marriage because at the very heart of his mission, very heart of the gospel was to deal with the problem of hard-heartedness. That's the essence of the gospel, really. As the Messiah, he came not to, to liberate politically. He came not just to make the world a better place. He came to transform the heart. He came to give us new hearts. Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
See, this prophecy is a picture of the new covenant, of God's coming. He will cleanse us. He will take that heart of stone, and he will give us a heart of flesh. And Jesus gives us this heart. See, in the old covenant, under the old ways, this heart of stone, this reality of a tender heart, God himself shows himself as a tender-hearted God, the God who's long-suffered, the God who forgave, the God who was willing to reconcile, the God who was willing to put up with unfaithfulness. And it was hard to know how to translate that into our own world, but that was the mission of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. Divorce is not an option you need. Christian, divorce is not an option you need. And the reason why Jesus can so severely restrict divorce is that you and I, we are no longer under the bondage of hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness does not have to be our destiny. It does not have to be the destiny of our marriages, friends. You have been given a new heart. You have a heart. The ultimate resource is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, a heart of flesh, empowered for tenderheartedness, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for patience, for long-suffering. All those things you need in order to make your marriage survive in a world of sin and brokenness. And, and, and let me just... Can I plead with you for a moment? Can I plead with those of you in particular who are in difficult marriages? I realize, I realize... <laughs> that oftentimes one spouse is in one place spiritually and another one is in another. And I know that's hard. But can I, if, if you are Christians, if you are both Christians, can I plead with you? Don't give up. <laughs> Do not give up on your marriage. God does not want you to get up, give up on your marriage. It is not his desire for your marriage to end. It is his desire for your marriage to be saved. And here's the thing. You have to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. You have to submit your marriage to Jesus. You have to submit your heart to Jesus. If your heart is hard-hearted, bring it to Jesus and he'll give you a tender one. If your heart is broken, and so hard, so often in life our hearts move to hard-heartedness because they've been so broken. I realize that. Bring it to Jesus. He will heal it. Is it cold? Bring it to Jesus. He will thaw it. Is it weary and distrustful? Is it nervous and anxious? Bring it, and He will repair and give you strength and hope and confidence in your marriage. And I, I can't emphasize this as much, as much if, I mean, in times of marital difficulty, all times of life, you have to come to God. You have to get real with God. Both of you have to get real with God. Friends, there's no marriage that God can't save. And I could share stories of God saving marriages that from the outside, you're like, there's no way that is going to survive. No way at all. And God rescues and redeems it. See, we believe in a God of resurrection. You can look at a marriage, you can say, there's no way, there's nothing that can possibly save that marriage. But when you look at the cross, you look at that cross, you're like, there's no way that man is going to rise from the dead. Friends, God is a God of resurrection. He gives you a new creation heart, a heart of flesh. He can do anything. And I'm not saying it's easy. Crosses are never easy, friends. But I promise you, trust Him, give your heart to Him, and He will redeem.
And friends, what I just said to you, you need to say to your friends. You need to say to one another. You need to preach. You need to, you need to challenge. We need to challenge one another in faithfulness in our marriages. But Jesus does recognize the possibility of an evil that is done to a marriage that has the possibility and the potential to destroy it. In verse 19, Jesus makes a reluctant allowance for divorce. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is a very qualified exception that Jesus makes for divorce. Note that even the permission, if you will, is framed in the midst of a prohibition. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And this word uh, sexual immorality is the word porneia, which is translated as, um, it can be translated as a lot of different things. And there's a great deal of actually debate. And many people actually think this is really not an exception that it refers to incest or refers to marital unfaithfulness prior to a marriage. And so many people who say that there's no grounds for divorce, even under sexual immorality, point to that. I don't think that's a good reading of that word. And yet I, I want to bring it to your attention because, again, it's so easy for us to want to be loose in how we interpret these things because we're in pain and we're, we're wanting out of a situation. We're going to find our way out. But what I want to draw your attention to in particular, what Jesus does not say are acceptable permissions or allowances or for divorce. Irreconcilable differences. That's not a reason. Incompatibility. Growing apart. Loss of affection. Emotional separation. Unhappiness in a marriage. These are not reasons that Jesus gives or the Scripture gives that are, that are, that are legitimate grounds for divorce. And Jesus is particularly vociferous in his condemnation of leaving a marriage and in order to get into another one. And that was the common, that was the norm in that time. A man was dissatisfied with his wife and he sees somebody that looks better. Certificate of divorce. And, you know, in my experience, the marriages that end quickly, without much process, that generally has somebody in the background somewhere where that person wants to get out and to get into another relationship. And I just... Friends, Jesus condemns that. You make a sinner out of yourself and the one you enter into a relationship with. And you have to wrestle with that, that reality. And yet, Jesus does make this exception in the case of sexual immorality or adultery. And to be clear, this is an exception and it's not a command. He's not saying if this happens, you have to get divorced because that would have been the way that the Pharisees would have seen it. That this is a command. You have to get out of this marriage if these things happen. Divorce under these conditions is to be seen as a last resort. After every other means has been exhausted, restoration has been exhausted. Now, again, this gets into troubled, complicated waters, and it's inappropriate for me here to give you a kind of scholastic sermon on the various distinctions and applications and permissions, but I just want to draw your attention to the two, the two reasons, I think, on good biblical grounds that divorce is, 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 is permitted. One I've already named as sexual infidelity or adultery. Breaking of the one flesh bond. That's what it, that's what, that's what it is. It's breaking of the one flesh bond. 
And the other one is the one that the Apostle Paul draws attention to in 1 Corinthians 7, which is desertion or abandonment. And Paul puts it this way, if the unbelieving partner, desertion by an unbelieving partner, to be clear, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God called you to peace. And here's, I think, the principle behind both of these, desertion and infidelity. Fundamentally, what they do is they undermine the building blocks of marriage. One flat, the infidelity by ripping apart the one flesh bond and desertion by basically abandoning that commitment to leave and cleave, to leave one's spouse and to cleave, one's parents and to cleave to your spouse. It's a breaking of the promise. Sometimes in the Bible, or <clears throat> sometimes in a marriage, the fundamental elements of the marriage have been so ruptured that divorce does not, seem, does not necessarily produce any greater evil. And at many times, it might even prevent a greater evil. The Bible permits divorce when an evil within a marriage exceeds the evil of ending the marriage. Let me say that one more time. The Bible permits divorce when the evil done within a marriage exceeds the evil and that of ending the marriage. This is a general principle that we have to be extraordinarily careful on how we apply. This is not a blanket principle because, again, in our hard hearts, we can think, you know, um, this is an emotionally abusive relationship and we think, ah, I can get out of this because it's a great evil to me. Friends, what you have to see very clearly in the way that Scripture talks about permission for divorce is they're objective. They're objective. They're not subjective. They're not simply, you know, I, this is not working. It's either there's infidelity, which is very clear, or there's abandonment. A person has deserted the marriage. And I know there's all kinds of other scenarios in here. You're thinking, well, what about in this or that? What about in the case of physical abuse and things like that? And friends, I do think that there's, there's wise application of this that allows, and for sure, in physical abuse situation, a, husband, or a wife and children should not be forced to live with an abusive husband. And yet, friends, in all situations of divorce, these are not things that simply you can decide on your own, I can decide on my own. We have to do it in the context of community. We have to do it with pastors and elders. We have to process and wrestle through what does Scripture say? What is the principle? And how do we help recover this marriage? Or how do we help protect? It's something we do in community. You can't just do it alone. And I should say, um, there's a great deal of debate as well on divorce and remarriage when it comes to even the possibility of remarriage. And many people think divorce, okay, but remarriage, no. That Jesus doesn't permit remarriage after a divorce. But I, I do not think that this is what Jesus' assumption is. In fact, the opposite is that the idea that a man would divorce and not get remarried is really just not an option in the ancient world. That's not something that would have been common. Jesus, I think, assumes the reality of, of remarriage. But let me just back up here again and make another application. It's my experience that oftentimes as a pastor, as a friend, there's a marriage, I, I learn about a marriage, and, and it's in trouble, and it's almost too late to do anything about it. There's been so much pain and so much has gone through that it's hard to even do much at that point. And isn't it interesting that we get married in public? 
You have your friends and your family. You have people to stand up there. And it's a communal event because marriage is public. That's what you have to understand. You, marriage is public. But it's so often people divorce in private. They're going through troubles. And they don't let anybody know. Friends, can I challenge you? <laughs> I know this is really hard. And I'm not saying just sort of, you know, all the gory details, but it is so important for us to be the kind of community where we can share with one another, hey, you know what, I'm really wrestling. <laughs> and there's discretion you have to show, and those of you who hear this, you need to keep confidence. But you need to be able to talk to people about your marriage. And we have to be open about how we struggle in our marriages. Because the idea that there's a marriage that doesn't have struggles, that's the lie. That's not true. There is no marriage like that. And we have to, and, and let me just challenge you a little bit this, because I find that, and this is part of our culture, is we are intensely private people. Like privacy is something, we just obsess about it. One of the, and, and, and friends, again, there's an appropriateness to discretion, there's a sacredness to that marital bond, but your obsession, our obsession with privacy, friend, it's a form of pride. It will ultimately be your undoing. If you try to make major moral decisions in your life, Without input from friends and family and community, most often you're going to make a bad decision. (laughs) Dare to be a sinner, as Bonhoeffer says. Dare to show that your marriage isn't always great. Now, the disciples, when they hear what Jesus is saying about marriage, I think if I could translate what they're saying into our... They said, holy smokes, are you joking? Are you... You've just... Close the escape hatch. Hear what they say. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They're basically like, You're trying to say, Jesus, that there's no possibility under these? That might might as well just not get married. And Jesus said, Okay, there's this other option. It's called the eunuch. A life of singleness. And here's the point I want to make. Friends, you have to see that marriage as Jesus teaches and understands it, is a call to discipleship. You have to see your marriage as that. It's a call to discipleship. And the call to marriage and the call to singleness, there are two forms of discipleship. And they both have distinct burdens that are in difficulties. And here's the thing. Those single people, those of you guys who are looking longingly and uh, perhaps endlessly at marriages, sometimes thinking that we have it all good. Friends, marriage is hard. It is hard. And I don't want to be, it's beautiful and it's good. And, and at the end of the day, I'd say it's probably easier to be married than to be single, but it is hard. Don't think that somehow being married means that, okay, I've got this sexuality thing figured out. No, no, no. <laughs> See, the cross, there are crosses anywhere you go. There, there's going to be a sexuality cross wherever you find yourself that's going to be hard at different points in your life. And Jesus is going to call you to pick it up and to be faithful. But here's the good news, and we're hitting the home stretch here, folks. The good news is, wherever you find crosses, there you also find resurrection power and grace. Wherever you find crosses, you find resurrection power and grace. And, and here's, I just want to close with this last, this last um, point, hope beyond divorce. So if you're here, or you're listening in, and you find yourself, and your life is a mess, you've made a mess of your marriage, or your spouse has made a mess of your marriage, or you both did it together, or you find yourself in any other kind of sexuality situation, and the question is, is, there, is it complete loss and ruin 
Is there any hope? What kind of hope is there? I want to draw your attention to two sexual sinners in the Bible. I love the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus goes to... This is a woman that Jesus meets at the well. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's a, she's a woman who has been divorced five times, and she's living with a man that was not her husband. Jesus initiates a conversation with her, at first around drink and thirst and water, and then Jesus pivots, and he asks about her husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. And she says, I know, you have five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. And she sort of punts, and the conversation goes in a different direction, and then she discovers And he bears witness to himself as the Messiah. And she runs back to the village. And she says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then his disciples come back and they're like, why are you talking to this woman and all these Samaritans? And Jesus stays two extra days. And the woman says again, he told me all that I ever did. See, Jesus confronted this woman in her sexual sin. But she did not receive it. This actually becomes the very basis of her proclamation. She's the first Samaritan evangelist. And it says all the people came out to see Jesus, and he taught them, and many were saved. Here you have this woman whose life is a total disaster. And Jesus doesn't shy away from bringing this to her attention and dealing with it. And I wish we knew what Jesus told her. I wish we knew how he said, here's how to make it right. But somehow he does. And somehow he gives her hope. And somehow he uses her She becomes part of the very mission of God. I love that story. Reflect on that. That's how God deals with sexual sinners. He doesn't move away from us. He goes towards us. Don't be afraid to go towards Him. However hard it might be to hear what He has to say, do not be afraid to go towards Him. Nothing is beyond His redemption and His repair and His mercy. And I already mentioned the story of David and Bathsheba, but friends, just think about this man, David. (laughs) He had another man's, he, he slept with another man's wife, and he, he arranged for him to be killed, basically. And to be sure, David suffers the consequences of this decision for the rest of his life. It doesn't go away. It's not something that goes away. And yet, and yet, God shows mercy. Not only that, Bathsheba, from Bathsheba will come Solomon, and from Solomon will come eventually Jesus. That God will actually. Bring the very Messiah himself out of this broken family line. And when you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, what you realize is that on that genealogy, you have incest, you have prostitutes, you have divorcees, you have murderers. No matter how, friends, there is no situation, there is no marriage, there is no screwed up situation that we can do that God, that is beyond his repair and redemption. You have to hear that. Please hear that. Oftentimes in, in the church, there is a stigma with divorce. I think it's not what it used to be in the past, but it's still the case in certain places where just simply to be divorced is a kind of stigma on you. And I think oftentimes people are in churches um, and they feel like divorce is that unforgivable sin, right? I divorce and it's, that's it, right? But friends, divorce is not the unforgivable sin, <laughs> And I, and I even want to draw your attention to, that, to the sacred reading today. God himself takes the name of a divorcee. He says, I will write you a certificate of divorce. I've done that. That God himself describes himself 
as a divorcee, and he sends away his, bride, his, his spouse into the wilderness, into exile. And yet it all comes back again with the person of Jesus. And I, I want you to think again about that sign of the cross that often in Ash Wednesday you get those signs, that stigma, right? It's a stigma. It's a sign. And think about what is a cross, friends? What is a cross? It's a sign of shame. <laughs> to, to bear the cross in your life is to bear a sign of failure. It's a recognition that I'm a failure. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I've screwed things up. I'm a disaster. And Jesus himself bore that shame ultimately. And he bore the shame of the unfaithful spouse. That's what you have to see. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die just as an innocent spouse rejected by his lover, by his spouse. He died as the unfaithful one, as the one who failed. That's, all, that's the only way we can make sense of his words for Mark. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was in his very death for our unfaithfulness and his shame that he overcomes the divorce of heaven and earth. And when he dies, the skies tear open. There's an earthquake. There's a separation, friends. But it's in his very death that he reunites. It's, it's in his very death that he reunites. As Paul says, he himself is our peace, who has made both us one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, please know that in Jesus Christ, wherever you find yourself, <laughs> there is hope. There is restoration, there is a future, but it's only in him, and it only goes through the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for tender hearts. Our biggest problem in life is hard-heartedness towards you, and that turns into hard-heartedness to brother and sister, husband and wife, friends, neighbors. Rescue us from our hard-heartedness, O Lord. Help us as we look at the Savior, as the beloved who died for his bride to cleanse and redeem and reclaim her, God. Help us to know that you are the God that bore that stigma of shame of the divorcee, and yet you came after us to make it right, to retrieve us your bride. Lord, I pray for all of our marriages. I pray for their strength, for their purity, for their peace. I pray for those contemplating going into marriage, that you would give them courage to to continue that journey, but to give them caution and wisdom. And I pray for those who are in the midst of deep difficulty in marriage, that you would give them hope, encouragement, and faith that you are there, you are present, that you have not left. And Lord, I pray, especially for those who have gone through divorce, that you would bring healing and restoration and ultimately peace. And as we go to this table, O Lord, and the symbol of reuniting, O Lord, may you bring our hearts together around the person of Jesus, who reunited heaven and earth for our sake. Amen.